on this episode of Risky Business. It's sometimes difficult to have that visibility that you need. You got to increasingly be out there, whether it's traveling to different locations, visiting the business, communicating the importance of compliance through your training, communications, whatever that may be. I think that's extremely important. And you got to create a brand. It's almost like you're a marketing company. You're really selling something to the business. You really are. I'm Steve Muddyman, and this is Risky Business, a show from GAN Integrity covering the wide range of issues in compliance and ethics, but with one goal in mind, empowering your people to do the right thing. I'm Steve Muddyman, and this is Risky Business, a show from GAN Integrity covering the wide range of issues in compliance and ethics with one goal in mind, empowering your people to do the right thing. So what does marketing have to do with compliance? According to Justin Ross, Staff Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer at FedEx Corporation, it's much more than you might think. A successful compliance program starts with a culture that understands its value. And that requires, yep, you guessed it, some refined marketing expertise. Justin joins us to share how to develop your brand as a compliance department across a global organization. We discuss the importance of having boots on the ground to stay on top of changing regulations, effective methods for measuring compliance outcomes, and how strong relationships multiply your impact. As you listen, think about how you're presenting your department to the rest of your organization. Are you building a culture that prioritizes integrity? And how could you leverage relationships inside and outside your business? to amplify your effectiveness. I'm sure many of our listeners today will know FedEx and have had personal experiences of working with FedEx in, in both their professional and their personal lives. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your journey at FedEx, and help people to get to understand the organization. No, great, Steve. Happy to. Look, and, and I hope those experiences have been good experiences with FedEx because as many touch points as we have with people, with companies, with individual consumers, that's very important to us to maintain that that great customer experience, which is what we strive to, to give everyone. So, no, the journey at FedEx has been awesome. I started at FedEx in 2003, and I'm a lawyer by trade. Sometimes I say a recovering lawyer. And when I came to FedEx, I had done the traditional five, four or five years in a law firm, came to FedEx and started actually in the litigation group. So handling lawsuits, class action lawsuits, employment litigation, business litigation, which frankly, I think was a good background or training ground for compliance. Because a lot of the issues and a lot of times when things go wrong in compliance, you're handling it in litigation afterwards. So it's a good uh, area for you to, to learn and, and to try to prevent and detect things. So did litigation at FedEx for roughly 10 to 12 years. And in 2015, I moved to compliance. And in 2015 is actually when we first created our corporate compliance department at FedEx. So before that, it was rather decentralized in our various business units across the world. But we decided we needed to centralize our compliance department at the corporate level. We hired a chief compliance officer who was my predecessor. And it was me. Another director at the time I was, my title was staff director of compliance. We had another director and we had one other employee. So it was four of us 
handling compliance for 400,000 employees in 220 countries around the world. So uh, a big job, but a, a really neat and, and challenging job. So I uh, did that really building the, the compliance team with our chief compliance officer. Did that for about two years, two and a half years. And then in 20, late 2017, I was asked to go to Europe for FedEx and moved to our international headquarters right outside of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And, and there I had a dual role. One was to build our European compliance department. So sort of like we did here in the U.S., build it in Europe. And then the other part was serving as the legal lead for the integration of a company that we purchased, which is TNT Express, which was a big company just like FedEx in Europe. So kind of the dual role of compliance and integration with TNT, which was an awesome experience. Uh, loved being over there. Very challenging. Did that for about two years. Then uh, my predecessor, chief compliance officer, retired in 2019. And the uh, company asked me to come back and, and take over this role. So that's where I am today. Thanks for that. And I think that that combination of having the opportunity, and I speak as a Brit over here in, I think we're still in close to Europe. We can associate ourselves with obviously that cultural change. Talk, talk to me a bit more about that, if you would, because I think that raises a, an important topic. You are clearly a global brand. You operate pretty much in almost every jurisdiction around the world, I'm sure. How does the way you operate your organization and your team operate in so many very diverse cultures? Because I'm sure we're going to get onto culture in a minute, but what's acceptable to one jurisdiction or country or region will be different to somewhere else in the world. How do you get a grip of that in an organization at the size that you are? You're absolutely right, Steve. And when you're a company, a multinational that operates in, in hundreds of, of countries around the world with different cultures and different types of people that are working for you and with you, one compliance program does not fit all. You really almost have to have different compliance programs in each uh, I guess, jurisdiction. And that's because, just like you said, different cultures uh, react different ways to training, to communications. Different cultures react different ways to speaking up. Some cultures are very speak up oriented, whereas some countries, people aren't as comfortable speaking up. So all those issues are different. And you've got to tailor your compliance program to the region or the country that you're working in. And, and look, that can be absolutely can be a challenge. The way that we really attack that, we have compliance teams in each region. So I've got my team at the corporate level. There's 18 of us here, and we oversee compliance for the enterprise and help set the strategic direction for things that we're going to do around the world. But we also have compliance teams in each of our business units in our international regions. That's important because they help us with those cultural differences. They help us with the strategies that need to be tailored to those specific cultures. And then they have a better idea of the risks that those regions are, are facing, which are different in each region. If you've got operations in Africa, the risks are very different than the operations in Asia. Even within Asia, in different countries, your risks are different. Southeast Asia is different from China. So it really helps that you have what we call boots on the ground to help you with compliance in those different regions to help with those cultural differences. Following up on from that point, we see a lot of cross correlation, if you like, with compliance and ethics. Could you say a bit more about, obviously your job title talks to compliance, but I'm sure there's it's intrinsic in what you do and what your team, and therefore 
How do you engender this sense of ethical behavior throughout the organization? Because you just touched on speak up, for example, and you know a lot of our listeners will sympathize with what and understand what that means. But how does that play out in terms of the ethical aspects of what a compliance team can affect and the way in which it drives that kind of agenda across the, the organization? Yeah, I, look, I'll speak about FedEx first, and, and I'm extremely lucky. Look, look, we're about to come upon our 50th anniversary as a company. Relatively young when you think about it, but old when you think about nowadays, there's companies that are 10 years old. The Microsofts, the Amazons aren't that old. So we're old guard now. But way before I got here, there was already a culture of integrity about doing the right thing. And that starts with the tone at the top with our founder, Mr. Fred Smith, and he's our executive chairman now. And that tone and that culture has cascaded down and it's really embedded within the organization. And frankly, it makes my job as a compliance officer easy. Because I've worked around the world, I've visited to our locations around the world, and there's one common denominator, and that's all employees want to do the right thing. So that makes it easy. But I will say this, I think you can have the best compliance program in the world with controls and bells and whistles and platforms and dashboards, but it's not going to work if you don't have an ethical culture. It's really not. You've got to have that foundation of an ethical culture. And to me, speak up and tone at the top to me are non-negotiable. I think those are the foundational elements of an ethical culture that you can build a compliance program. Employees have to be comfortable speaking up, bringing concerns. They have to be comfortable doing it. And then they have to have a sense that when they do it, that the company will listen to them and do something about it. So that's extremely important. That's foundational. And then tone at the top. Obviously, you can have, I think you can have the best compliance program in the world. But if you don't have that tone at the top, with your chief CEO and with senior and executive management about the importance of ethics and culture and doing the right thing, then I think it's going to be very difficult to succeed as well. That brings me on to my next point is how is your team and the role of the team viewed outside of compliance? I speak to professionals like yourself, leaders in compliance teams in organizations around the world. And and there's varying degrees of, of visibility and, and engagement, let's say, and recognition of the value and the outcomes that are driven there. Can you say a bit more about that, Justin, in terms of, you talked about tone at the top, which I love. How does what the team does every day roll up in terms of visibility the executive team see and, and worry about every day, perhaps? Look, when we started in 2015, I think one of our main objectives for those first couple of years was building our brand. People don't know us. This is the first time we've had an internal compliance department. We got to get out there and make ourselves visible. We need to show value to the company, to the employees, to executive management. And that's a, that's an everyday job. I wake up every morning thinking, all right, we got to continue to promote our brand as a compliance department, promote what we do and show our value. And sometimes that can be a challenge. I think with a company that now we're up to almost 600,000 employees, and like I said, operating in 220 countries around, around the world, it's sometimes difficult to have that visibility that you need. You got to increasingly be out there, whether it's traveling to different locations, visiting the business, communicating the importance of compliance through your training, communications, whatever that may be. I think that's extremely important. And you got to create a brand. It's almost like you're a marketing company. You're really selling something to the business. You really are. And I said, it's easier at FedEx because they're a way more willing consumer. Our employees are because of the ethical culture. 
but we always have to be on our A game about constantly promoting not only our brand, but the importance of compliance and our value to the business. And on that point about selling the value to the brand, completely get that. How receptive are they? How are those commercial teams, for example, and the heads you mentioned marketing just now, heads of marketing and the heads of other functions that you have in the organization? How do those kinds of conversations get received? How do you integrate and work together and share joint value? Look, first of all, the, having that foundation of a, of a great culture helps. Everyone's already willing to listen and understand. And they really do, at least at face value, understand the importance of compliance. But as a compliance team, you really need to be attuned to the needs of the business. So my compliance program needs to line up with our strategic business objectives. If it doesn't, it's going to be tough to get your compliance program off the ground. And what I mean by that is learn the business. Show the business that you're here to help them navigate the risks that are inherent in the business. And by doing that, sometimes that involves taking some risks. All compliance officers will, I think, acknowledge that our job mainly is to navigate the company through those risks. And because of some laws are gray areas and some are regulatory regimes are unpredictable, there's risk inherent in everything we do. And I think the business really appreciates it when you're a practical and pragmatic business advisor on things like that. And you're willing to understand that there are risks that sometimes that, that we have to take, no matter what the circumstances are. And the business, I think, will appreciate that when you're that kind of business partner that's really practical and pragmatic and, and helps them to navigate that risk. So that's why I tell my team all the time. I said, look, one of the most important things, we've got certain strategic pillars that we focus on. And one of those is being responsive to the business, being pragmatic and practical in the advice that we give and being a true business partner. And if you're like that, and if you do that, they're going to keep coming back to you when they have questions or when they have ethical quandaries or if they have issues that they need help on. If they don't think you're a good business partner, I'm afraid they won't come to you. <laughs> they're just going to do it on their own. Completely get that and know the business. That's hugely important, isn't it? That's effectively table stakes, isn't it? Being able to have a conversation that you can engage in by understanding what their business challenges and their problems are too. So, so, so on that point, just to expand that a little, could you talk to some of the qualitative and quantitative ways in which you're able to effectively measure the outcomes that come from the ethics and compliance program that you're running across the business? Look, it's tough to measure success in compliance. And I think any compliance officer will tell you that. And I think we're, we're continually trying to find ways to do that. How do we measure the value of compliance to the business? But I look at it, a couple of things that, that we measure, look at how we're impacting the business and our employees. One is through, obviously, the surveys. Surveys are things that everyone uses. You do culture surveys to see, all right, is this stuff resonating with our employees? Do they understand our code of conduct? Is it helpful to them? So employee surveys are one thing. What we've really started doing, which is I think is even more valuable than employee surveys, and it's supplemental, it's not replacing it, are focus groups. So we'll do focus groups with the business where we'll get in a room and we'll have 10 or 15 business partners in there and we'll ask them questions about, hey, do you find this valuable? Is this helpful? Does this work? Is it? Are you getting compliance fatigue? Are you getting training fatigue? What would help you to understand compliance better? So the focus groups have been very helpful for us in figuring out if we're having an impact on the business. 
Another area or, or I guess method that we've used, and it's probably not intuitive to think that this would help in that area, but risk assessments. So we've really revamped our risk assessment program where we're, we focus on the areas that, that we are subject matter experts in, like anti-corruption, data privacy, export controls, the things that we own. And as part of that risk assessment, we have extensive business partner meetings with any kind of business partners or employees that may have some touch points with those risks. And through those business partner meetings, they're almost like, like focus groups as well. We're learning even more about the business through interviews with them. They're telling us those risks. They're learning about compliance at the same time. So that two-way conversation, I think, has been very helpful for us to give value and show value and to learn if some of these things are resonating. But look, we have some quantitative measures as well. I think hotline metrics are a thing that a lot of companies use to measure their speak up effectiveness. If you're getting, there's a debate about is, is a lot of hotline reports good or bad? And frankly, I think it's good. I think it's good that employees are comfortable speaking up. Now, if you're getting a lot of hotline reports on one issue from lo one location, yeah, that can be bad. But hey, now let's go in there and address it. So those are things that I think help you to measure the effectiveness uh, of the speak up culture. And I, and I think it's it's really helped us. It's interesting you say that. Only today I was actually reading about an organization that just reported it had its highest level of speak up cases recorded in a given year. And the question was, is this a good thing or is it a bad thing? And I think to your point earlier about a culture and this sort of alignment between ethics and compliance, creating an environment where people can speak up or they feel they can raise issues has to be a positive, doesn't it? Yeah, look, it's a bad thing if you're not doing anything about it. That's when it's a bad thing. The hotline originally came out of the SEC requirements. So we all got a hotline initially because the regulations required it. But as I think a lot of companies have evolved and the use of the hotline has evolved, especially with FedEx, learned it's a valuable tool, a very valuable tool, almost like the canary in the coal mine effect. The hotline, obviously, you have some hotline reports that are not as valuable as others. That's part of it. When you have a lot of awareness about the hotline, you're going to get some reports that probably aren't hotline worthy. But even those are extremely important because if you look at them in the aggregate and you really use some analytics around the hotline reports, you can see things and be a lot more predictive about bigger issues that may be coming up. So that's a treasure trove of data. And we're really just dipping our toes into how valuable that data can be for us in analyzing it and being more predictive and proactive in detecting and, and preventing compliance risks. Let me move on to another area, Justin, that maybe to lighten this up a little bit, maybe I could ask you a question. Wait, the hotline's not light enough? <laughs> I was going to lighten it up just a little bit more and talk about what gives you sleepless nights as the Chief Compliance Officer at FedEx Corporation. So do you have sleepless nights? I've never been a good sleeper, Steve, but that's not because of this job. <laughs> Look, I'll tell you, I don't think anything really gives me sleepless nights, but I'll tell you what the big risks are that we're focusing on or what I see as bigger risks out in the industry and that are more relevant to what we do. One of them is export controls and trade. And as we've seen with the Russia invasion of Ukraine and all the sanctions and just the increasing sanctions that have come about with the China-U.S. trade relations, those are tough to keep up with. And it's not just the U.S. on export controls. All countries now uh, have sanctions on who you can ship to, which countries you can ship to, uh, military in-use items, 
all of that. And that is with us, we're a carrier, but we are just as responsible as the exporter. And these laws apply to us as a carrier, just like they do to exporters. It's a challenge to keep up with all of these laws. And then uh, a lot of the, the countries are increasing enforcement around them as well, including the U.S. So that's an area that we have continuous focus on that area because of those risks really impact us as a carrier. Another issue, and, and I think all companies are seeing this, is in the privacy realm, the data privacy realm. We're seeing more and more countries enact data privacy laws. We're seeing more states in the U.S. enact data privacy laws. We're seeing companies that are wanting to do more and more with data about getting insights and, and marketing data and selling data and all that. And there's all kinds of pitfalls and things that you need to do to make sure that you're protecting your customers' data and you're only doing with the data, what you say you're going to do with the data. So being very transparent about it. So that's a, an area of risk. Not necessarily, I, th I think FedEx does a very good job in being very transparent about how we do that. But you're seeing more and more attention on it from regulators and states. And, and look, we'd love a federal privacy law that, that preempts the, the state laws at some point. You're hearing a little bit about that, but not a lot about it. That would help things. But that's obviously an area, too, of, of risk. And it's not unique to FedEx. I think we're all facing that one. Just picking up on that point that you talked about with regard to the war in Ukraine right now, we are seeing sanctions being imposed daily. Many of them make the headlines, but so many don't. How do you keep on top of understanding what these sanctions are and what they mean for you? Look, we've got a really strong export trade group that I have an SME on my team. There's an SME in, in one of our business units. We have SMEs in Europe that really stay on top of this and they do a great job. And we've got a process where when these regulations come about, how they're synthesized and communicated to the business. And we're all in lockstep on here's the regulation. Here's the sanction. All right. Here's how we communicate it. Here are the people that need to know. Here are the downstream systems that need to know. So they can establish the controls so we comply with the sanctions. We've got a good process in place to, to deal with that. Now, is it perfect? Absolutely not. We're trying day in and day out to try to improve it and make it more efficient. You really need SMEs, subject matter experts that understand this. And then you need also your business partners that have the processes that are involved in shipping the shipments and handling, engaging with the customers. They need to understand it as well. It's not just a legal issue. These issues impact the business. So if, if you can really inform and, and help the business who's impacted or the units that are impacted or the functions that are impacted become aware of these issues and how they impact what they're doing, I think it helps as well. So, Steve, it's a challenge. It, I think all companies have that challenge. But having that sort of infrastructure kind of helps us to, to manage it. Keeping the organization updated keeping people communicated with, helping people understand what's going on when you've got, I think you said 600,000 employees in 220 countries. That's a job in its own, isn't it? No, it is. It is. But like I said, we have, it helps to have compliance and legal teams in those various regions that are keeping up to speed with those things. So if we've got a team in, in Asia, we've got a team in India, as these issues pop up, they're aware of it. They have a, a direct line of communication to my team. We have a direct line of communication to the business people that need to know. So is it a flawless system? No, but it works because we all, and, and I'll touch on this, and you may touch on it in a minute, or I will, 
relationships are extremely important. Having those relationships, my team having the relationships with the business, my team having the relationships with those compliance teams and legal teams in our various international regions. We have that level of comfort. We know each other. We've worked with each other before. So relationships are extremely important to helping the process move smoothly. You mentioned just now you talked about yourself as the carrier, and I guess many of our listeners will recognize that, of course. But you said that the things that affect you in terms of governance and compliance and and legal aspects associated with what you do as the carrier are as important as those for the exporter. Can you say a bit more about that? Because that's something that's new to me. I didn't expect for us to be having a conversation about that, but that's a really interesting perspective, which many won't necessarily have thought of. Any kind of sanctions, typically the OFAC sanctions or OFAC laws or any laws about restricted parties or the BIS-related restricted party laws. First of all, as an exporter, you have to be aware and not ship your product to someone that's on those lists. But as a carrier, we can't carry a product for an exporter to someone that is on those lists as well. So that's what I meant by that. So we have to work very closely with the exporters to, to understand those laws and to be compliant as well. And that's why it's a challenge. Look, we ship 15, 18, 20 million packages a day, and we have to screen those packages and to ensure that they're not going to any parties on those lists. And that's just by sheer volume, that's a challenge. I can only imagine the sheer logistics of managing the complexities that you've just touched on there. It is, but like I said, we've got good subject matter experts. I think we've got good uh, processes in place. And look, frankly, good relationships with our shippers and exporters helps as well. We're managing it, and it's. But hey, like I said, that's one of that's why I said that's one of our top risks, and, and one of the things that we are continuously focusing on. You did, and throughout this conversation, you've talked about your role as a marketer. You've talked to her about your role as a constant communicator. You've talked about your role and focus on how you engage the business. You've talked about relationships with parts of the organization in far-flung places around the world. You've talked about how you continue to maintain relationships with, I'm sure, your key key clients as well, because those will be key. You clearly spend a lot of time talking to people as well as administering and having your team administer the day-to-day. If you think about that in terms of lessons that you've learned and sitting in the role ahead of the organization as you do, it sounds to me like you spend an inordinate amount of your time just engaging with various stakeholders across the business on a constant basis. A hundred percent. Great pickup on that, Steve. Yeah. It's engaging in building and maintaining those relationships, I think is a key for any chief compliance officer. Because look, I've got 18 people on my team. Having 18 people responsible for compliance for 600,000 employees in 220 countries, you're not going to do that with 18 people. I can't do that alone. My team can't do it alone. We have to rely on our relationships with our business partners and our other friends and colleagues in, in legal because that's the only way it's going to work in any compliance team. Most compliance teams, I don't think a compliance officer is ever going to tell you that they're over-resourced. <laughs> you know, we're all, we're always fighting for resources when you're a lean team. You've got to rely on other folks to help you. And, and that's a matter of engaging with the business, making the business aware that, hey, this is a risk. Let's work together to mitigate this risk. Because at the end of the day, if I help you and you help me on this, you're going to meet your strategic business objectives. So having those relationships and those partnerships 
not only with the business, but with other functions that sort of touch on compliance as well. Internal audit. I mean, we've got a great relationship with Internal Audit, who's an awesome business partner in helping us conduct investigations and helping us audit certain areas that we need to audit. HR, huge partner, training and communications. HR really helps us a lot on training, which is extremely important. Our security team, we've got a very robust security team, but they're very helpful on investigations. They have a lot of expertise in some of our far-flung uh, regions, and, and they can help us with interviewing witnesses and things like that. So not only having the relationships with the business and the legal teams, but also partnerships with internal audit, HR, and security kind of helps get the job done as well. Just on that point, we did talk about it earlier, Justin, with regard to culture, and I was going to reference HR in this. And obviously, HR plays a different role in different companies in terms of where their scope reaches throughout the organization. But one assumes that HR in your organization is also responsible you know, for thinking about employee culture and the way in which they recruit individuals, the way in which they retain talent and, and look at skill development, as you suggested just now. That sort of hand-in-glove relationship between your organization and HR obviously is going to affect and drive a positive culture in the organizations through your actions. Was that something that's become a recent relationship or is that something that's endemic in the organization that's been there forever? A little bit of both. So look, HR in FedEx is always traditionally, and I'm, I'm saying owned, but I'm saying that very loosely, owned culture, and, and meaning that they're responsible for helping drive a unified culture. Obviously, the business, tone from the top, we're all responsible for culture, but but the HR teams have, have typically driven it. And when we need to reevaluate culture pillars or things like that, HR leads. Now, we are a very close partner in that because compliance and ethics is an integral element to any culture. So we actually just went through a reevaluation of some of our culture values and culture pillars just recently, frankly. And it was a process where my team was extremely involved and we're there to make sure that, hey, integrity is at the top of the list, <laughs> compliance, ethics is at the top of the list. And frankly, we've worked so well and so long with HR. That was pretty easy. They understood that. They said, hey, this is going to be this is clearly part of who we are and what we are. Like we started in 2015 with the corporate compliance group. And I think we built that relationship over time uh, with HR. And I think it showed in this recent culture evaluation that we did how well the groups work together. And that was because of that ongoing relationship. Really interesting to hear. You touched on just now, you mentioned a couple of times the size of the team. In most businesses, including mine, the team invariably doesn't get bigger, but the demand on the team does. How are you thinking about how you can continue to create an efficient organization with the resources that you have? but at the same time, effectively step up to the increasing demand on the business as the brand, as you touched on right at the top of the conversation, as the brand continues to develop, the commercial growth of the business continues to get bigger around the world and you bring on more employees, operate in more countries. How do you scale? How do you continue to stay on top of the issues, which are not only those that are there today, but also the new ones that are likely to come? I think two methods or two strategies that we use. One's technology. Got to use technology. <laughs> We've got to find ways to use technology to be more efficient. And that's taking away these manual processes that we used to have, whether it's gifts, approval, conflicts of interest, disclosures, things like that. Getting rid of the manual processes, automating those, 
in, in taking pressure off the people on the manual processes. So that's one. And we've, we've had some success with that. We've automated our conflicts of interest process. The alert line management, our hotline management and our investigations management has been automated too. We have that all in one system. The restricted party screening that, that I told you about with the shipments and OFAC compliance and BIS compliance, we're continuing to automate that as well. So finding ways to automate to be more efficient is one. And, and that's one of, I had three, three pillars for uh, us to focus on as a team. One was automation, one was analytics, and one was manager support. And automation's right there at the top. And I think that's going to make you a lot more efficient. The other thing is, I think, improved governance. And, and what I mean by that is, like I said, because there's, we have partners in the regions and business units around the world. We have a relatively small team here, but a lot of us see the same issues. So for instance, we've got a, a business unit called FedEx Ground. We've got a business unit called FedEx Express. One's the ground transportation. One's the airline. We're separate business units, but we see some of the same risks. We see some of the same issues. We can use some of the same compliance practices. So establishing a governance structure, we call it our Cross-Opco Compliance Council, and it has representatives from all our business units and our international regions who focus on compliance. We get together once a quarter. We talk about sharing best practices. What risks are we seeing? What are we doing that's new and cool and technology? So having that governance structure where you can break down some silos and be more transparent with each other about risks you're seeing, that helps as well because you're not only a, you're not a team of 18 then you're a team of 60 really so you can divide and conquer hugely insightful this is the challenge for all leaders that are going to be listening to this podcast they're all dealing with very similar challenges pressure on the cost of the organization demand from the business to be able to scale and support greater complexities we've spent the last 40 minutes or so talking about what those complexities are and how this stuff is being thrown at you guys all the time yeah, no, no doubt. And look, it's not unique to FedEx. I talked to, I think one of the most valuable things that a compliance officer can do or a compliance team can do is benchmark. And once a week, I'm talking to someone from another company in my role or in compliance. And I'm saying, Hey, what are you seeing? What are you doing? What's something, you know, cool that you're doing? What's what technology are you using? Uh, what's your experience with this vendor? So to me, man, talking to others and stealing ideas as compliance officers, we're not ashamed to, to steal or borrow an idea from somebody. I spend 50% of my time reading the news, what's going on out there, what are the things coming down the pike, and talking to, to other compliance officers and regulators about what we need to be thinking about. The perfect segue to my last question before I let you go. Share some of that insight from these others that you speak to when I ask you, what do you see the role of the chief compliance officer developing? How do you see that developing? How do you see it changing if we look over the next couple of years? The way I look at that is I look at what the expectations from regulators are. And if you look at the, the guidance that came out from the DOJ, the renewed guidance, what it was a year ago, about expectations for effective corporate compliance programs, and you look at that and you can tell what they're expecting. They're expecting that chief compliance officers have a continued seat at the table big decisions that the company's making, it's expected that chief compliance officers weigh in on that. When they talk about technology and data being more data-driven compliance, that's something I see chief compliance officers embracing. We're going to have to embrace. If you haven't embraced technology right now or already, you better embrace it and analytics. So as compliance officers, I think we need to embrace that and really know and understand technology and, and how it can help you and make you be more efficient. 
And then the last thing I think with ESG and in a lot of uh, companies, the compliance teams are taking on ownership of ESG. We don't at FedEx. We're partners with our ESG team. We don't own it. But I think you're going to see compliance officers expand in these other areas, especially with the ones that are taking on the ESG responsibility. Justin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you for spending the time with us today. Thanks for listening to Risky Business. For more insights and resources, check out the show notes or go to ganintegrity.com and be sure to follow along wherever you get your audio.